0: Well, welcome to Foothills. Broke out the sweater today. Man, today is a sweater kind of day. We, if you're visiting with us on campus for the first time or you've been here for a little bit, we're glad that you're with us. If you're watching online for the first time, we're glad you're here. Foothills is a church where we focus on coaching you up in your faith. And our challenge is that you uh, think We want you to think for yourself, because this is about your faith, and then act on that or do. So when thinking and doing come together, then what happens is that is how you grow. So we've been learning a lot, and we're in a series called Kingdom Come, and what this is, is on occasion, you need to just kind of step back and take a real big overview of something, because that helps us as individuals understand kind of where we fit In this thing called life. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the earliest civilization is about 7,000 years old. 5,000 BC, the first civilization cropped up, and archaeologists have gone back and figured out that this was the first one. We'll talk about them in a moment. But over that 7 1000 year period, historians have figured out there's only been 238 years of actual peace in that 7,000-year period. That means just over 3% of the time the world was at peace. So over 96% of the time, people, countries, nations have been at war. What is up with that? I mean, you think about that, over 96% of the time, people are at war killing one another. Well, if you look in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve introduced evil into the world, right? And it's an old story about the creation event. And the point of the creation event in the book of Genesis is recorded by Moses, was to kind of give us a picture of why life is the way it is, kind of the origin story. And what's interesting is Adam and Eve introduce evil into the world, right? To this reality, this space-time continuum. And what happens is the very first consequence of this in Genesis chapter 4 is what? The story of Cain and Abel. And what does Cain do? he kills his brother. And this pattern has not changed. And we can look at the last 7,000 years of human history to see exactly how this pattern has not changed. The earliest civilization on record today is known as the Sumerians, okay? This is Sumerians, and they were about, uh, about 5,000 BC, so 7,000 years ago, and they had some really incredible cities, and it was in the Mesopotamian region of the Fertile Crescent, meaning it was in kind of in modern-day Iraq kind of an area. And then immediately after that, you had the Akkadians. And the Akkadians, this is an actual relief of uh, Sargon, who was the leader, the first king of the Akkadian Empire in 4,000 BC. So this was in Mesopotamia, but now down in Northern Africa, about 3,000 BC is when the ancient Egyptians came to power, and they were a massive empire, uh, and they really advanced science and mathematics, you know, kind of the beginning of mathematics. They built the pyramids. And if you've ever been to Egypt, they're pretty impressive, Okay. Now, uh, during this time too, kind of shortly after the Egyptians started to raise to power, another b- eventually massive civilization started in China, and it was the Xi and Shang dynasties. And uh, here's some actual relief of the Xi dynasties. They believe this is the first rise of the Chinese civilization. And that was about 2000 BC. Then after that, you kind of can start reading in the Old Testament. We go back to Mesopotamia and you see the arise of the Syrians and the Babylonians. Okay. And eventually the Assyrians and the Babylonians are the ones that conquered Israel, right? And took a lot of them back. Well, we don't hear a whole lot of uh, in the New Testament because it excuse me in the Old Testament because it ends 400 years before Christ came and during that time the Greeks then came to power and the Alexander the Great went, just kind of ravaged through the entire North Africa Middle East he got over into Indonesia area or East Asia West Asia and and all of around the Mediterranean Italy I mean he just, he just raced through it. When he died, it split into four, his four generals kind of split into four areas, but it's still considered Greek. And then immediately after that, this is actually him right there. That's a, a mosaic that they found of him is the Romans came to power. Okay. Romans came to power. And why we, we know a lot about the Romans is because their empire was absolutely massive and they came to power. Uh, Rome was founded in around 700 and something B.C., but it didn't really come to power until after the the war with Carthage and all that. So, about 300 B.C., they really came to power. They took over all the Greeks' uh, territory, which included Israel and Jerusalem, and then they lasted until about 450 A.D. when Alaric the barbarian came and ransacked Rome. A lot of people are not aware of this, but uh, that first group uh, that came in and ransacked Rome were called vandals, right? And that's where vandalism comes from. They went down there, they knocked everything over, they broke a bunch of stuff, they had spray paint, they would have spray painted it, but they burnt a bunch of things. And then they went, okay, we're leaving, and they all just left. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Um, history is so much fun. So after that, what happened, now we're kind of past the birth of Christ and something really interesting happens is you have probably in about 650s you have Charlemagne, and you know how we get Carolina and all those, all these words came from Charlemagne's empire. He tried to reestablish the Roman Empire, but under Christianity, he called it the Second Holy Roman Empire, and it was massive. It, it encompassed all of Europe and uh, all of the states on the on the north of the Mediterranean. Around 650 AD. Meanwhile, what was going on down in the Arabian Peninsula? Where the Islamic Caliphates were just basically growing. First, you had the Umayyad one after Muhammad died, and then you had the Abbasids. In the the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, here, here is one of the caliphs. They 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 were really great builders. Uh, particularly of military installations. So they they came to power around 750 AD. And this is when they started to sweep across all of North Africa. And North Africa was just filled with all Christians. And this is when they came through and they started to eliminate uh, Christianity. So they had all of the Arabian Peninsula, all of Northern Africa. Eventually, they get over to the Morocco area, and then they cross the Strait of Gibraltar and they go up into Spain. They were called Moors then, and they took over Spain for almost 400 years. They had kind of a presence there until the Reconquista uh, under Ferdinand and Isabella, who finally s- solidified the, the reunification of Spain, so to speak. So that's going, on. I know, you know, the danger of telling you about all this history is your eyes start to glaze over in your head, but I can't help it. I like it. Right. But it's important for our discussion today. All right. So the, the, uh, the, the though were destroyed, not by the West, but they were destroyed by who? The Mongols, Genghis Khan and the Mongol army was unbelievable in what they achieved. When you think of land mass, it was probably one of the largest empires because of just the massive amount of land that they covered. And one of the things that was so amazing and why they're so devastating is because they had developed. Uh, they they had these horses, and their horses were small. They weren't these big, huge horses. They were very small horses, and the guys tended to not be very big they're all under 5 6 i think but they they developed a short bow that they could shoot with deadly accuracy and so it was an armed cavalry and so it was very difficult to fight against the mongols and so they they came screaming through all the way from mongolia all the way through china southeast asia middle asia they went all they they skipped uh Uh, India, because of the Himalayas, right? We're right there. And then they kind of swept down all the way up into the Islamic Caliphate areas, particularly uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And they kind of broke the back there. And they were in power for not very long. They built these massive cities along the way, because right after that, uh, the, the pushback from them was the Ottomans. Okay, so the Ottomans kind of uh, pushed back, and the Ottoman Empire was a long empire, and it lasted all the way until World War I. A lot of people do not know that the Ottoman Caliphate lasted until uh, 1918, 1919, when it was actually then broken up by the British so, and then what you do is you have kind of in the 20th century, the 1900s, is this is when the Third Reich started to uh, come to power. A lot of people are not aware of how big the Third Reich became, you know, all of Northern Africa, all of Europe, all, pushing all the way up into Russia, and uh, it was starting to come west. They, they were, their last thing that they wanted to take charge of was uh, Britain or England, the Isle of England. Uh, and they were not able to conquer it. And then that's when the United States entered into the war and turned the tide, so to speak. However, because they also lost uh, on the western or the eastern front with Russia, we saw two other big civilizations crop up in the 19th century, and that was the communists. These were the Bolsheviks. These, this was China's uh, Mao Zedong's cultural Revolution that it really grew large people don't remember how big the USSR because it collapsed in the uh, 1980s and so people forget how big it was I remember because I was just a little tight back then but I remember that and so uh, we that's kind of all of these I didn't get every single civilization from 7,000 years ago, but it's important to understand is that there's been a number of them, and these are the biggest, and there's something that's so fascinating about all of them, whether they were from China and they spoke Chinese, whether they were from uh, the Arabian Peninsula and they spoke uh, Arabic, whether they were from the Ottomans and they spoke Turkish, or whether... They spoke German or English or Russian. It doesn't matter what region of the world they were from. It doesn't matter how long they lasted. And it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. They had all one thing in common. You know what that was? They grew their empires and expanded their economy through war. It was all about conquering. Every single one of them grew their empire, their civilization, they extended it by war. They went to war and their economies depended on it. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is that today we're being faced once again with a understanding of Islam. And we're like, what is going on? And why did this happen in, to Israel? And, and why are some people in support of it and some people against it? What's going on? on. And why is it that that area is always seems to be at war? Well, the reason why is because in Islam, the whole point of Islam is that land is to be judiciously managed for the sake of the people. So, it's very similar to Judaism in that it has a very high view of land, right? And they break the land in the entire globe into three categories, okay? First is Dar al-Islam, and this basically means all the land that has come under Islamic control, all right? It is under Sharia law. Today, there are 41 Islamic nations in the world, and the majority of them employ Sharia law, then there is Dar al-Sul, and this is land that is in a subjective, submissive treaty with all of the nations that are Dar al-Islam. So this is, there's not any, really many of these at all. He says, then everything else in the world is Dar al Harb, and this means war. It, it basically, Dal al Harb is the simple point is that these are territories, this is land, this is nations that have rejected the call of Dar al Islam nations to submit to Islam. So if you refuse as a nation to submit to Islam, you are Dal al Harb, and the Quran and the Hadith all teach that Islam's major goal is to subdue all Dar al-Harb so the world becomes Dar al-Islam. That is their expressed goal. And today, many, according to Pew Research, Muslims believe that their economic hardship is because they are not conquering Dar al-Harb. And so this is why you see so much, because it's taught in, in their schools. Uh, it's That's kind of the point of their belief system. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that, that people don't really understand that that is their expressed religious belief. And so they pursued that in some form or another. So here's my question for you today. I know that was a long introduction, but I do have a point. Please track with me. If we are in a spiritual war it's playing out on this earthly battlefield, right? As followers of Christ, we're told that the kingdom of God is to expand. How do we do that? What is our strategy? If every civilization since the beginning of time that we have records of have expanded through war and conquering, right? And if Islam's primary goal, and you look at their history, it's not hard to read. You can just Google it real fast. Even Google won't filter it. Um, What happens is you could just see every area that they've taken over, they've done through military conquest. So if that's the case, then we're in a spiritual battle. Then shouldn't we all be going out and buying AR-15s and getting ready to expand the kingdom of God? Is that how it's supposed to be? That's our question. Well, what's interesting is when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus told us exactly how we are to fight the spiritual battle and expand his kingdom, and it just might surprise you. Let's read the scriptures, starting with Matthew chapter 28. This is after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is, he appeared to the disciples on numerous occasions, and then he calls them to what Matthew calls the mountain of ascension. And this is where he comes, and he ascends into heaven, okay? And in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of this gospel, it says, now the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him they worshiped him. So you see, before the disciples thought he was just a man, but now they'd seen him resurrected and they believed he was, but now they know he is God because they've seen his resurrected body. It says they worshiped him. So they all believe that he is God. And then they, Matthew says something so interesting to me. He says, they were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Well, what were they doubtful about? What were they doubtful about? Well, were they doubtful that he was resurrected? Well, no, because they've seen him, right? Even doubting Thomas had been convinced. So they weren't doubting that. They they weren't doubting that he was God because they fell down and they worshiped him. I think what Matthew's trying to get at is that they were doubtful Because Matthew was writing to Jewish people, and Jewish people believed that the Messiah was coming to establish the Jewish kingdom in a physical sense, right? You see this when uh, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the chief priests and the guards come to arrest him, and Peter stands up and goes, so now's the time, and he pulls out his sword. And he cuts the ear off one of the servants. I'm like, man, you're, maybe he's not really very good at aim or something, or the guy ducked, and, but he kind of sort of got him, you know? So he kind of sort of got him. And Jesus looks at him and says, what? Put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he heals the servant, okay? Isn't this interesting? So what were they doubtful about? I think what they were doubtful about is, what in the world are we supposed to do now? And we, we're not supposed to take up arms and fight against the Romans? No, that's not the kingdom. So Jesus then spoke to them, verse 18, and says, and this is why I think the, the issue of doubt is so critical, all authority. And we misunderstand this word that Matthew is using. He's, Jesus is saying all authority, meaning all of the power, all the power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So I now have all the power. Based on this, all the power, you know what your job is? It's not to go out and make swords. It's not to go out and form armies. He says, go out and make disciples of all nations, and the word for all nations is Panta, Panta meaning Greek for all ethna. So Panta to ethna. And ethna is the word we translate as nations here, is the word we get ethnic from. So he says, go out to all ethnicities, all nations, not just geopolitical things, but ethnicities, right? And this is what I want you to do. I want you to subdue them, conquer them, take their stuff, and make it your own. Is that up there? Oh, no, that's not up there. Okay, what is up there? I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Isn't that fascinating? He says, this is your battle plan to expand the kingdom of God here on earth. If you flip over to Acts chapter one, uh, beginning with verse uh, six, this is what he says. He says, and so when they had come together, so they're talking about this mountain that Matthew's referencing, you know, that they came together It says, and they were talking to Jesus and they said, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? You remember Matthew where he said some were doubtful? They're having this, this is what they're doubting. They're having this conversation because they're saying, you're going to restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel, right? And we're going to be the kings and in charge. And Jesus says this, it's not for you to know the times or epochs, which the father has fixed by his own authority. Verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my righteous warriors for God, purging the universe of its vileness and corruption. (laughs) Well, that's not up there either. Sorry, I get carried away. I've seen too many movies. (laughs) You shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's a city, right? Judea. Judea is like the state in which the city of Jerusalem existed at that time. So you had like a city, then the state. He goes, and Samaria. Samaria was like the entire region. He goes, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. We are to be the witnesses of Christ, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Isn't that amazing? You see, what he's saying is, the battle plan to expand the kingdom of God is discipleship. What is discipleship? You know what discipleship is? Discipleship is a one-to-one personal relationship where one person passes on the knowledge of who Christ is so that they can discover Jesus for themselves. Then they walk in learning how to follow him. That is discipleship. Now, sometimes you just be, have to be really practical. So I want to be super practical right now. And I want to talk about all the top, top reasons why this is like brilliant. It's absolute best way for the kingdom of God to expand. First reason is this, is that the kingdom of God is love. It's not about power and control. It's about love. Therefore, it can only expand through a willingness acceptance of another person. You can't conquer them in battle and then force them to believe. Charlemagne, you know, when he was going through and and taking over uh, and building his things, his army would go in and they would take over a town. And then what they would do is they would grab everybody. They would take them down to the river and then they would forcibly baptize them and say, you're all Christians now. Just saying, that didn't take, right? The kingdom of God is about love, and it can only expand through a willingness acceptance of another person. You can't force a person to love. You can force a person to comply, right? You, you can't, but you can never force someone to love. That's something they must give and participate in their, with their own free will in john chapter 13 uh beginning with verse uh, 34 he says the following jesus a new commandment i give to you that you love one another even as i have loved you that you also love one another this is how all men will know that you are my followers you are my disciples and what did jesus say we were to do go and make what Disciples, this is how people will know that you are my disciples, not by your uniform, not by the buildings you build with giant crosses on them, not by your music and how cool it is and how awesome it is, not by your political positions. He says, this is how people will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. So how can we invite people to be disciples of Christ when the kingdom of God is all about love if we don't use love as the primary way to invite them? See, that's the point, is that discipleship is brilliant because it doesn't matter what's going on politically or geopolitically. Nations could be a war. It's always possible for you to love another person. The other reason uh, I think this is so important to understand that it's an act of love is when you say today in America, if you say, hey, I would like to be involved in discipleship with somebody, what you're actually saying is I'm going to give my time, I'm going to give my energy and my attention to another person in order to help them grow their faith. You see, It's so important to understand is that Christianity has always grown, and it is the largest belief system in the world today. 2.6 billion people follow Christ in some form or another. But what's really interesting is it's all about a voluntary invitation to follow. It can't be forced. Today, one of the difficulties that we're having and why the world is so confused is that Islam is exactly the opposite. The doctrine of Dar al-Harb is the doctrine of holy war. Now, people get this confused with jihad. Jihad is a battle, right? And wars are made up of what? Battles. So jihads are specific fatwas that are often written by uh, uh, the Muslim clerics that gives you permission or focus to conduct a battle about a certain thing. But these all are a part of dal harb, which is a holy war to subdue all of the regions of the earth that have yet to become Islamic, and they need to become Islamic, okay? The expre- expressed purpose uh, is to be at war with nations that have rejected Islam or won't accept it, and then... Once they have been taken over, they can convert to Islam, or they can be executed. And today, if you convert from Islam, it is a death sentence in Sharia law. Now, many people in America say, that's not true, that's an overstatement, Muslims don't believe that. It's a minority position of a few radical. Well, according to Pew Research, 56% of all Muslims worldwide believe this to be true. That is not a minority position. That's a majority position. Discipleship is so brilliant as a strategy to win this, this spiritual war because it's personal in nature. In John chapter 10... Uh, let me see if I can get here. John chapter, oh, i will just flip back a couple pages in John chapter 10, verse 27. It says the following. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My sheep hear me. I know them. They follow me. The goal of discipleship when you're working with someone is to get them to have a confrontation with the living God. you're, You're trying to get them to hear the voice of God in their own life. You know, my greatest fear in doing this, what I do is that when you have a confrontation with God, when you hear Jesus speak to you, that his voice sounds even remotely close to mine it shouldn't, right? It should always be his voice, not my voice. And so my whole goal in coaching you is to, is to arrange this meeting, right? It's, it's, You know, uh, like on on a side note, you know, some, one of the joys of being a pastor is matchmaking, you know, is you get to find a couple of people say, Hey man, if I can get them too, maybe they'll fall in love or man, they'd make a great couple together, you know? And so you can kind of maneuver around in the back, uh, background and try to get all this stuff going. Some people call that manipulation. I call it fun. Um, You know, you're just kind of trying to get going and and what you do is you just try to get them together because if you get them on a blind date, you know, that's so awkward and sometimes you can't get through. So you're trying to figure out, hey, maybe we need to do like a service project or maybe we can go on a missions trip and we get these two on there and they'll start talking and you'll do all this stuff. So that's kind of fun, right? But you know what? You can't make them fall in love. And so you really can't take credit. And that's kind of what preaching is. It's, it's to help you fall in love with Christ. And that's what discipleship is, is to help the other person have a personal relationship with God. The kingdom of God grows when a person comes to faith in Christ personally, not just intellectually, but with their heart. The other thing about discipleship that I think is so brilliant is that it's absolutely and incredibly flexible. It takes the unchanging gospel, the immutable God, immutable meaning he is not changing, he's consistent. So uh, of Jesus Christ himself, who is God, and allows people to meet him in all different kinds of ways. Uh, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, it says the following, um, it'll be in the New American Standard. I'm going to read out of the NIV uh, just to give you a, a little deeper understanding, it says, to, Paul is saying, this is what I'm willing to do in order to help people meet Jesus. He goes, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. There's never been in the church a cookie-cutter approach to producing fully devoted followers of Christ. All successful approaches have the same core ingredients, commitment to the Word of God, commitment to prayer, commitment to stewardship, which means giving, uh, and to using your spiritual gift. And I can guarantee you, if your faith is not growing, it's for one of those basic reasons. If your faith's not growing, it's because you're not exercising prayer at all. Uh, you're not in the word of God. If you're not in prayer, if you're not in the word of God, you're not going to grow. For other people, it's not using their spiritual gift. They are not interested in finding their ministry, right? Because they're like, oh man, I don't want to serve or I don't want to do that because it's too much energy. And they don't realize it's kind of like going to the gym. When you go to the gym and you get in shape, what happens? You have 10 times as much energy because you feel so much better. In the same way, when you use your spiritual gift, your energy level goes up or it has to do with giving, you know, so many people in Christianity in America today aren't growing in their faith simply because they don't give anything to God. It's really that simple. So, the next thing that makes discipleship so awesome and is a battle strategy to win the spiritual war is that discipleship is all about coaching, right? Uh, when you lead with coaching, you're not trying to exert power and authority over a person, are you? What you're trying to do is help them get better in their own faith. Listen to what Romans uh, chapter 10 says. It's really interesting. Paul is talking about leading his Jewish nation of Israel brothers and sisters to Christ and their resistant. And he says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is they may be saved. I want them to be saved. He goes, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God meaning the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ, he says, they sought to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they didn't receive God's gift through Christ. They rejected it. And what did they do? They tried to create their own. You now, what's really interesting is that uh, we have a large uh, Latter-day Saint community. Uh, with all the influx, it's getting smaller. But the my, our approach has been, we love the Latter-day Saints because they have a zeal for God. They just don't have a zeal for God in accordance with knowledge. The knowledge they have is false, but their zeal in their heart for God is real. That's exactly what Paul is saying about the Israelites. It's exactly what's true about LDS. It's, it's what's true about Muslims right? One of the things that we do as a church that's so odd is that we are, we're, we're a really weird church. If, you don't, if you're watching for the first time, let me give you an idea of how strange we really are. Um, how strange we are is that we are willing to stand up and talk about what Islam actually teaches and what their expressed goal is. Not a lot of churches will do that. A lot of people are afraid to do that because they feel, oh, that's going to come across as phobic or something of that nature, Well, I quote chapter and verse out of the Quran everywhere else, so that people have the facts to make up their own mind. But then on the other side of the stick, you know what? We're one of the few churches that feed Muslim immigrants that have come as refugees into Boise, Idaho, when they're in need. We get mattresses so that they have beds to sleep on. We get them furniture, when they need this. And the, the most common question we get from Muslims when they come over here is, why are you as a Christian doing this for me? Because I am Muslim. Do you, do you see how that works? Is that, well, because we recognize you have a zeal for God, but your knowledge is wrong. So we're willing to stand up and say, here's correct knowledge in comparison to your knowledge but we will understand you ultimately want to meet God and we want you to meet him. And we're going to show you how in a personal way. You know, one of the most shocking things that I read this past week that just blew my mind, and that is right now in Gaza, it is a war zone. It is being blown up like unbelievable, right? And guess what? Over the last week and a half, over 10 young Muslim men have converted to Christianity. You know why? Because they had dreams about Jesus. Does that just blow your mind? That blows my mind. So God is, God is real, God is moving, but what happens is sometimes our knowledge becomes such an ideological trap right? We, we, we have a zeal for something. Well, I love your passion. I love your zeal. But hey, that's not good knowledge. When my son was little and we went to the zoo, he loved the tigers and the lions, you know? And he wanted to run up and squeeze through the bars to go pet the tiger. Look at the big kitty cat. I go, I, ha- I love your passion about the cat. You don't have knowledge about the thing. It wants to eat you. You know? I, I mean, it's that way. I can love Muslim people, but at the same time say, this ideology wants to eat me. And so we'll deal with it strong, courageously, but in love and in truth. And I I, I think I have like 10 of these, and I can't do all 10 of them, but so I want to finish with this one. Discipleship is so amazing as a battle strategy because it keeps the main thing the main thing. What did Jesus say? He said, go and make disciples. And the quality of your spiritual growth, the depth and strength of your spiritual growth is directly related to your discipleship. When you grow, the kingdom of God grows. When you grow, the kingdom of God grows the main battle strategy to win the spiritual war is to start in the spiritual realm first, which is discipleship. We have to win the spiritual battle before we can win the ideological battle, which is knowledge and truth. We have to win the spiritual battle. And then once that was won in the spiritual realm, then we can win the ideological battle, right? But we do it in a discipleship way that says, we're not here to force this on anybody. We can't make anybody believe it, but we can articulate it and we can argue it. And then people start to go, wow, this is true. And once that happens, then we can win the physical battle. And that's how it works. So my final challenge is pursue discipleship because that's the best way to turn the global events that are happening into a more positive direction. The best way to do it is to make a list I call it the principle of the five, and that is you should have a list of five people in the front of your Bible, on your refrigerator, on your bathroom window, on a sticky note, wherever. You should have five people that you're praying over, that you want to encourage, that you're thinking about, these are people that I want to lead to Christ. If you are brand new in the faith or you haven't made a decision about it yet, then I would encourage you to say, can I get on somebody's list as one of the five? Try to be one of the five of somebody else's list. If you're online and you're part of our online campus, don't sit home in the morning and and just watch the service, no matter how faithful you are, all by yourself. I encourage you to have brunch at your house once or twice a month. Invite your neighbors over and say, hey, come over at 1030. We're going to have a little bit of brunch, and then we're going to watch the service. And then that's why we do the discussion questions at the end of the service in order to help you have a discussion with the people in your living room. This is all discipleship. This is how the kingdom of God is going to grow. And guess who gets to grow it? Because most people think this. Let me drop a little bomb on you right now. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, is that what he told the preachers to do? Is that what he told your church to do? Or is that what he told you to do? Let's stand for closing prayer. God, you always are right, and it's awesome. Amen. This song to those that miss being dedicated. The world robbed you of your spiritual romance and you want to renew your vows. Jesus waits at the altar for you. He's not wearing a watch, so you still have time.